Welcome to Three Little Things, a natural health podcast. We've created this space to help you positively navigate the world of holistic and natural well-being, where each week we will explore something new and dive into a diverse range of holistic health topics from all walks of life. As chiropractors, we are equally passionate about helping educate, share and empower you on your well-being journey. Created with you in mind, Three Little Things aims to bring you digestible topics and applicable tools and strategies to help you grow, thrive and live well. So let's dive in. Well, welcome back to all of our amazing listeners for another episode on the Three Little Things podcast. My name is Sarah and I'm joined as always by my incredible co-host Lily. Um, And today we have another extra special guest, which we're going to get to in a second. But I just want to say, yeah, a big thank you to all of our continual listeners for jumping on board and uh, listening to season three, which is really exciting. And um, like Lily and I said in our intro episode to this season, we're really excited to bring you guys a really full season of some really amazing content. And today's episode is no different and one I am personally really excited to get into. So Lily, do you want to maybe start us off a little bit about what this episode is going to include and maybe introduce our guest today? Yes. So we began this podcast late last year. And as most of our listeners know now, um, we thought we would only be speaking to about five or 10 people. But as um, Sarah has been tracking, um, several thousand have downloaded our podcast. So our audience is um, broadening. So we can't tell any more private jokes because um, there are too many listeners out there. <laughs> and too many people that know us too well oh, now. As yeah, well, okay. So, yeah. so no more PJs. Um, <laughs> but we are going to keep on that theme of the triad of health, which is um, structural or biomechanical, which is also nervous system. We're also going to talk about the biochemistry sometimes and mental, emotional health and so on. So today we've got this amazing guest. I've known Carlo for quite a while, but I would like him to actually um, introduce himself. Carlo. Okay. Thank you, Sarah and Lily. Um, Always a pleasure to um, be given an opportunity to have a chat about topics that are dear to my heart. A little bit about myself. Um, I guess I, I wear three hats at times. Uh, and sometimes all at once. <laughs> I'm a, a clinician and first and foremost, I've been a, a chiropractor, a registered chiropractor in Sydney for 22 years uh, and absolutely love what I do. And, and, our, and our focus in our practice is very much neuro rehabilitation. So we see people with concussions, which is the, the topic of today, people with dizziness and, and chronic and complex um, neurological based conditions, including migraines and, and other related conditions. The second hat is research. Um, I've uh, recently completed a PhD uh, 18 months ago and thoroughly enjoyed it, despite it taking five years of my life, uh, thoroughly enjoyed it and continuing to do research in the in the field. And thirdly, I'm, a, I'm an educator. I love teaching. I've been teaching this field of neuro rehab or clinical neuroscience for over 10 years both in Australia and overseas. And I thoroughly enjoy traveling with the family and getting experienced uh, different cultures and uh, and meeting many practitioners uh, across the way. So I guess I, I sort of share my time between those three fields and and um, it's, it's fun, it's interesting, it's demanding, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm. So Carlo, you and I met, um, I think about 15 years ago, maybe 12, 15 years ago. We're- 2004. 
Oh, okay. Yes, 2004 we <laughs> when, started. When, when you were 12 and, and I was um, 18. <laughs> yeah, okay, great. And um, I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, he's got a big brain. Let's just um, track this. And this just got bigger and bigger, you know, with the ego, but never mind. Um, but where you went with it was not where I went with it. So I went into my clinic and used it on my patients. So I could see all the work we were doing in clinical neuroscience working so well um, with our patient body. And um, a lot of my words began to be uh, more neuro words in my practice. So we use a lot of words like cerebellum, um, vestibular training, um, vagal tone, feedback, feed forward, upregulate, downregulate. So in our practice, those words are quite um, everyday now. So I love it that you actually went way beyond and became a PhD in this topic, because now you can actually bring to us all that amazing research and how we're going to use it in our daily life, in our population. So, Yeah, look, translation of the research into bite-sized chunks that practitioners and patients can use is something that is passionate to me. I, 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 love, I love the research, but there's, a, there's a, a distinct between the researchers and everyday people. And, and I guess sidestep that for a moment, my PhD was in the Faculty of Engineering at, at UNSW uh, in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. And uh, proudly, I've got to say, just to, as a side here, uh, I was the first non-engineer to graduate with a PhD in the most prestigious university in Australia, mm-hmm. Indian Engineering, which actually we only, um, we only graduated two weeks ago. So that was pretty exciting. Um, but in the lab, we had a team of biomedical engineers, researchers who were at the top of their game. And then my PhD was all about, was a, a, a clinical trial. So we had patients who have had chronic dizziness for twenty years, uh, for, for many years, up to 20 years, uh, who really needed the empathetic and that, and that, that touch, the human touch with their condition. And then we had the engineers who were very linear, very um, you know, black and white, and I was that interface between, you know, being compassionate with the, with the patients and empathetic and having had many years of experience with the patients, sort of sharing that and, and understanding and talking to them in that manner. But at the same time, knowing the, the minutia, the detail that goes with an engineer. And it was, it was, it was actually, it's probably one of my proudest parts of, of my PhD was that, was that interface and the ability to communicate, to take what the patient was saying talk with the engineers and say, well, this is what's happening, let's tweak it. And then learning their language about, you know, frequencies and sinusoidals and all these things that aren't necessarily, I guess, comfortable for me or, or, or things that I've grown up with, but talking physics and talking quantums and talking all these sorts of things. And it was, it was such an interplay between them. But as I said, it was one of the things that was one of my highlights of the, of the PhD was, was bridging that gap between the detail and the communication and go back to your point Lily, is that you know it's that translation of knowledge mm. is something that I've invested heavily in and something that I I'm, it's dear to my heart and when I teach people practitioners about this sort of work having you and I gone through the the depth of some of the programs that we've done but to be able to have the breadth to be able to to relate that to um, the person in front of us is something that I, I'm evolving, but I'm, I think I'm doing pretty well at it at the moment. Well, it's that classic sort of right brain, left brain bounce, isn't it? You know, from your heart to your head and, and you know, and back and forth and so on. And so I love it that um, it was in the engineering department because how nerdy is that? 
but you bring the human part to it, Carlos. So when we discussed doing this before, we thought about how we're going to make it useful to um, our general public. And we actually discussed the population of people who are actually quite influential in our children's lives, you know, um, who are their sporting coaches, would you say? Definitely. And teachers and the people that are at that interface between the kids uh, playing sports, for instance, and and between regulate, uh, regulatory bodies or, uh, you know, whether it be the school bodies or whether it be the clubs uh, or whether it be the, the, the parents themselves. And because there's a unique uh, experience that they have and an insight that they see when things aren't working well from a physical perspective or a, a reaction time perspective or a, or a, a visual spatial understanding of where to play on, on the field and you know why is Johnny changing positions when he shouldn't be why isn't he following a play his balance is not right he's not running around the the markers as, as well as we would expect so coaches uh, I think are, are, are in, a, in a unique position to be able to share their thoughts but sometimes they're, they're constrained by some of the powers that be as to how they advocate proper concussion care. Hmm. And I guess there's all kinds of um, minefields here because we have so many children that um, you and I see who are having learning difficulties and straight away are put onto um, various medications. You know, when really if they could come and see people in your practice to have just their eye movements checked or their balance, you know, posturography, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess it might be a good time maybe to, for you to explain maybe what we should be looking at um, as a general population in in children maybe or in other adults? Children that relate to neurodevelopment or concussion? Hmm. We could have four or five hours doing we this. Could. So, so <laughs> let's let's you pick. Where where shall we go with this today? Well I think, you know, we off air spoke about concussion. So I'm happy mm. to yep. um, and you know if if you and the audience like me back, I'm more than happy to come back for part oh, two yes. or three or four. We love that. <laughs> um, so with with concussions, um, obviously the the avoidance of concussions is not something that most people can prepare for. So, um, and, and we 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 don't advocate people being too cautious. Although that's the trends where I think a lot of parents are heading nowadays with with their kids. But I think getting r- rough and tumble with kids and 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 playing and rumbling and rumbling and playing sports, I think it should be part of what we do. And and we just unfortunately something happens. We just got to be prepared and be educated. So, I guess with that in mind. If someone has had an injury, I guess it's the first thing to do is acknowledge it and, and trying to either have some witnesses around that can explain what happened. Because having a child, even of moderate age of teenagers, to explain what happened and what they're feeling, you know, their sensory system and their interpretation of what's occurring is not often the best. So, you know, most parents now can, well, actually, no, they can't film what happens on the sport field from a distance, but there might be some footage or there might be some um, someone giving a first-hand account of, well, this is what happened. So I think having an understanding of the events and immediately what followed in terms of some of their uh, behaviours, some of their symptoms, some of their physical markers or fix, uh, functional markers. And what I mean by that is the things like, things like balance, gait or walking capacity. Um, things like the ability to keep still or uh, or fidget, you know, if there's any disturbances in vision, uh, if there's any complaints of any symptoms like dizziness, lightheaded, musculoskeletal aches, headaches, migraines, uh, 
if there's any discharge. Uh, and there, there are some things that I would say I would put in the bracket of sinister and something that really needs urgent attention to those that are, we need to make an observation and make a call as to where our next steps are. So I think obviously probably to do our uh, listeners service, I think the best one of the things that we should do is identify when things aren't right and when immediate action is required. So obviously if someone loses consciousness, uh, if they're blacked out for a period of time, if they have a seizure, you know, they're all things that please don't wait, call emergency services to get some attention to that. That being said, unfortunately, that doesn't happen too often. So the shades of grey that often can go through the, uh, can slip through the, uh, the cracks, uh, some of those things that I mentioned, being observant of sleep patterns, fatigue levels, appetite, willingness to participate in other activities, attention, focus. Uh, they're all things that should alert the parent, uh, guardian, teacher, coach. Mm. that something's not right, something needs. And there is a period of observation. There is a period where for the first 24, 48, 72 hours, uh, a greater observation is placed upon kids in in that respect. Um, There are some tests that you can do baseline that are done on the field by a qualified coach uh, or a trainer. There's some very standardised tests. And there are things that parents can do at home, uh, again, as observations. And there's a critical period that you just want to see what happens from that. That being said, I would always generally advocate having someone more qualified to make a uh, a better appraisal of what's happening um, and then to judge whether intervention or care or further rest or otherwise is required. Um, so not, I guess to answer your question, uh, Lily, been observant, maybe looking at some key markers that can tell us, oh, okay, that's not normal. Does that change over the next few days? Mm-hmm. And if it persists or deteriorates, that's when we intervene and seek um, the assistance of someone qualified to do so. So previous to this discussion, um, we had all done some work on concussion and whiplash and how similar they were <clears> due to the brainstem um, events. And so our audience actually is quite familiar with um, words like autonomic nervous system, right? because they're so educated. And now <laughs> they're magazine words, mm-hmm. as is the word homunculus, you know, so various words are okay. So I'm quite keen to for you to tell us what are some of the key markers that a parent might observe in their child, because that would be quite good to know. So uh, you mentioned the brainstem and with whiplash and in particular with concussion, and and just on that point, there's often difficulty even to the trained person to distinguish between, between both of them. But we assume that both events have occurred where they've had a whiplash injury in conjunction with a concussion of some sort or a mild traumatic brain injury as as it's classically referred to. So the area that that seems to be affected most or at least impacted most is the brainstem, typically because we've got this fairly large mass that sits on top of our neck. We've got a spinal cord that's tethered in our spinal column, and we've got this large mass that almost always rotates with this injury. Seldomly is it a pure front to back or side to side. There's almost always a degree of rotation, and that rotation is transcribed really and impacted through that brainstem. So that brainstem is the area that houses a lot of our sensory 
integration areas, we've got our vestibular inputs, so those that relate to inner ear function and balance. We've got our cerebellum, which again relates to balance, cognition, vocal aspects, fine motor control. We've got um, our pain regulation centres, so people often feel more sensitive to touch in different areas of their body, from their legs to their arms, even though they may not have injured those areas. We have areas that relate to the face, the trigeminal area or trigeminal nucleus, which takes information from our face. So we tend to get facial pain or headaches or migraines that are associated. We get um, jaw-related issues, again, that relates to the trigeminal area. We get sensitivities to light, uh, which happens a little bit further up in the brainstem. We get sensitivities to sound, which again happens in that more upper portion. Um, So we get these areas um, as well as, as you mentioned, um, the autonomic centres, the arousal centres, so our sleep, our our day night, uh, sorry, our sleep and our arousal centres sit in that brainstem, particularly in the lower part of the brainstem. So we've got this big, well, we've got a small area, but it houses a lot of different areas that relates to the ability to sensory uh, process and um and deal with the things that we're subjected to on a day-to-day basis. So when that's been disturbed, whether it be physically or biochemically, which can both happen in concussion, these areas are hypersensitized. And, and so it takes less of a stimulus to trigger a lot of these symptoms. So people will have the facial pain, the jaw issues, the sleep deprivation, the autonomic dysregulation, the dizziness, the poor balance, the lights and sound sensitivity, the arousal, the brain fog, that goes with it as well. So that brainstem really is where a lot of those sit. Yeah, it's not only the brainstem, but if there's a, a direct injury or a, what we call a coup and a counter coup that occurs in different higher functioning areas, then we can get things like mood and behavior, uh, um, some visual disturbances like uh, we can get uh, uh, blackness in, in our vision. We can get body awareness issues. We can get other things that arise from that. But in my experience, overwhelmingly, the brainstem is where most dominant issues arise because they're the areas that feed the higher areas. So unless we get those midbrain areas and the brainstem working well, we we often find greater challenges with some of the cognitive aspects, the the brain fog, the attention, the focus, the alertness, the the emotional regulation area. And again, most concussion patients will report that. But in my opinion, they tend to be more on the secondary nature rather than a primary. A lot to digest, but it sounds, okay, so a lot of it actually sounds quite um, intuitive for the parent of the young child because your child is a perfectly happy, balanced little man and then he gets a head knock or a whiplash and over the next 72 hours or so he or she begins to change. So it's great to note that and you've given us a lot of areas to start noting that, you know, both in the um, autonomic nervous system as well as um, their peripheral, their gait and so on. Now you did mention something earlier on which I thought was really interesting before the recording and that is should children have a baseline check Mm, then? That's a great question and one that if our target audience for this talk is is aimed at the coaches, then I would strongly encourage 
um, that there are steps put in place to get a baseline measurement of kids before they start a season or at, at any point at the earliest time, whether it be now, you know, we're, we're probably one or two months into a season, mm-hmm. still not too late to get a baseline. So a baseline by definition gives us a starting point, gives us a, a line in the sand to say, well, this is where little Johnny or little Sarah, sorry, Sarah, I was looking at you no, as I said Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> little Sarah. Uh, little Sarah um, it, um, sits in terms of, and there are some key domains that they look at and yeah. and balance cognitive scores in terms of like memory, focus and attention. Um, there are some eye movement tests. There's some, there's some tests that we can use as a baseline to be able to evaluate, well, this is where we're starting from. Because mm. really, unless we have that, we, we don't have a reference to say, well, we've deteriorated a lot. Yeah. Or in fact, we're not doing too bad. We're about where we should be. But also it forms a part, it forms a a point at which if they were to have a concussion, that we, we're working towards that level. Yeah. So we always want to go at least to a pre uh, to a preseason or, or a baseline level, and many instances we want to improve that uh, yeah. as well. But at least we've got a point where, well, this is where we started. This is where we were post injury, yeah. and now we've got our monthly checks, weekly checks, and we can we can plot that change over a period of time. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a target. So it's it's you know outcome measures are something that all practitioners should be using, whether it be you know coaches or parents or practitioners of any sort. We want to be working towards something, but unless we we have a target, we won't know what that is. So preseason assessments is something that um, we've done with with teams and with schools. We go in there and we can do a, a series of very standardised baseline tests that we can evaluate where where they are at this stage. And and in many instances, when we do these, we actually also identify. Hmm, do you know that Johnny's not great? in this, but may not be as obvious because we have compensation in so so many other areas. And because that brain's generally working well, it compensates. But we've brought to the parents or the teachers or whoever's attention to say, well, actually, there's an eye tracking issue that may be a problem here. And we speak to the parent, yeah, well, he's got dyslexia or he's got this or he's got that. It's like, well, okay, well, there's an opportunity maybe for us to, to help you with that. Um, and there's many examples of that as well. So I find that to be a great way to break the ice, you know, get people to be aware. And again, if we've got that baseline, we can always go back to that as well. So baseline assessments are things that I would encourage. In fact, I'm, I'm very surprised whenever I speak to parents or coaches or or even kids that are in teams, have you done a baseline assessment as part of your your school or your your team, your Saturday morning sport. And it's like, no, we don't do that. It's always putting band-aids on something when it's there. So, you know, it's part of this I'm hoping that part of this 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 podcast is infiltrating and, you know, spreading that out to people so they can be aware of it. And I mean, concussion now is a big topic in, in the media. So I'm not sure what what further um, enticement people need to to be able to do that. Well, I suppose because you guys could be my children's ages, we've seen a lot of development in in healthcare. You know, I mean, back in the day when you had footy players mm. with concussion um, and then sent back, you know, two or three days later, and then later on in life develop um, CTE. You know, mm. all those kind of things are now finally fully being researched. 
but they are the extreme cases. So you have described other things which are sort of subclinical, but there. But I actually do have a couple of questions regarding the baseline because I think it's imperative. But do coaches actually know these tests and, and how would they how would they find out? Because a lot of these people are mums and dads who are doing it after school, you know, because yeah. they're just kind. Yeah. I mean, most of us think of coaches, they think of the elite coaches and yeah. that have gone through all the formal training. And mm. you'd expect, or well, certainly hope, that they've gone through uh, conditioning and, and training programs that have concussion management or at least an assessment or acknowledgement mm-hmm. as part of their programs. I'm, I'm, I've not done one, um, so I, I can't say, but I'd, I'd like to think that's the case. But for the mums and dads who are doing the, you know, the, the kids, um, you know, Thursday night training and the Saturday morning sport, I think it, it's, I think it's responsible for the the club to take this on board. You know, if they have volunteers assisting the club and helping the kids, and I'm sure parents love to do that, but at the same same time, I think they should be supported. I think mm. there should be an opportunity where they can do some training on what to what to look for. You know, if if something happens on the field, what is, what's the first aid? What do you do? I mean, because you're not going to have a first aid kit. You're not going to have an ambulance parked on the side of the, yeah. of the pitch. What are the, what's the next step? So, again, I'm, I'm not familiar with what that does. I'm sure it's a club by club and maybe level, you know, depending on the level of, of team involvement. But if we're looking at the grassroots level, I don't think there's a lot there in my opinion, at least what I've seen through my kids being on the, on the pitch and uh, and speaking to kids in the office and parents, I don't believe there's that there. And and so, I think again, it it's a, a club responsibility thing. I think it's a, it's either a school responsibility thing, whatever field or uh, organisation is involved here, whether it be school or, or or clubs. I think it's the responsibility of them to to seek assistance and, and certainly we've worked with teams in the past so I'm happy to assist where possible but there, there might be some other formal avenues in which people can can do that as well but so so here's where all my chickens have come home to roost okay because when my kids were tiny and I had an idea ding ding um, I'd say hey you know someone should go and do this you know x number of ideas later and one day when the smarter Alex of my children said, mom, you go and do it. But no, now we have Carlo who might want to go and do it. <laughs> so because I'm not sure this thing actually exists. So I love the way you've just said at club level, because I think that's a great place to start. Is there an algorithm or um, something that's already been generated for this population of um, mom and dad coaches? I'm not up to date with the exact. Hmm. Um, again, my wish is that there is. I, I can't say f- for, for certain, given the media attention and given the, the legal ramifications of ill-advising a child to return back to field when they shouldn't, I think it's pertinent to to the club that they take every step to go, we're doing what, what's required. Now, maybe that's a big leap I'm, I'm, I'm making here and I don't know whether that's the case, but um, but there is a there is a uh, there's certainly a legal and we know and we see we've seen many kids that have been under our care that have had injuries on the field whether it be musculoskeletal like a, an ankle or a knee or a joint problem 
to those that have had concussions that are un- under workplace injury, so to speak. I forget the, the term, but it's it's that relates to the sports. It's an insurance that the that they pay as part of their club membership that covers their any injuries that are sustained, including concussions. Now, another avenue, just thinking of this, may be well, the clubs may not get insurance unless they've done a certified identification and proper management of concussions because the insurance company may say, well, you know what, we're not going to insure you Mm -hmm. because you're a liability unless you know and your volunteers and the people that work with you are a liability for us because we know that unless someone's managed properly, that their care is going to be extended and it's going to cost us money. Now, I, may, I may not say those words, but I'm, I'm sure that may be another opportunity that the club say, hmm. Well, that's exactly why this podcast was begun, wasn't it, Sarah? Because it was actually more about how to think, not what to think. Right. So that is a protocol that would be great to establish now. So this is where change can take place. And also your other point about um, sideline um examination after the incident. Now, I'm not sure many mum and dads have actually been shown how to do um, and it, tests. You know. It is a, it, there's what they call the SCAT, which is mm. the sideline concussion assessment uh, test. It is aimed at someone with some degree of training, not necessarily a healthcare practitioner, but someone that has some training. And, and it may not be necessarily the, the mum and dad without the training component to it, but to me, if someone embarking on being a coach of a, of a club or, 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 or their kid's team, that understanding the scat and how to perform it should be the bare minimum, yeah. in, in my opinion. Because it's, uh, it is a very standardised test. It is um, systematic in, in its approach. The, the training of it is very simple. There are many YouTube videos that one can do. You can even do it on, a, on an iPad. There are apps you can download and you enter the results in the iPad based on the kid's age and, and so on. And this is what the test that should happen. And it, go, it goes through step by step. Now perform this. Now perform this. Now perform this. And there's a, a rating or a scoring of each of those. And you get a score at the end and that gives you the SCAT, the SCAT score. Mm-hmm. So, again, it, it may not be necessary for the mum and dad that's not involved as a, 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 in the sideline. Uh, or certainly they can. It's not hard to do, but I think anyone that's on this on the on the pitch as a coach or as a trainer, to me that would be, in my opinion, necessary. Or, or parents with four or five boys at home <laughs> wrestling, you know, because how many of those come to our practice? I mean, oh, so many. Uh, and that's why I actually became a pediatric Cairo many years ago because when I had my third child, I just realised how many times they get body slammed without me actually knowing it's <laughs> happening. And and how many kids do you see in the practice, you know, Sarah, who, who come in who've hit their chin? How many kids do you know who have a scar, scar. Mm. on the bottom mm. of their chin yeah. from falling out of the bathtub? Yeah. Those bloody negligent parents, you know, yeah. so... Well, but that's adults too, right? Not even kids. Correct. No I alcohol. Think, yeah. And I think kind of on that same point, I see I see a lot of kids in the practice who might might forget, for lack of a better word, to tell their parents that they've had a head knock. Uh, I think particularly over a recent number of years where they haven't we haven't been allowed to have as many parents or visit um spectators, sorry on the field mm. or on the sideline, um, I think there has been a bit of a drop in, yeah, picking up some of these head knocks and these kids maybe because they just want to keep playing or they don't think it's that serious aren't telling their support network, their their um, coaches, their parents, their um, practitioners that they've had a head knock. And so I know my first question when I get some of my young kids and particularly some of my boys on the table in practice is, 
any head knocks, any, you know, any big tumbles, any big stacks, all of these things. Um, and then obviously doing a proper evaluation and assessment on that because they just don't tell people, you know, and it's sometimes, sometimes the symptoms are so mild that parents, yeah, might not have picked up on things. So I think that's another big thing. It's a good point. And I guess further to that, one of the things again, we want to highlight to, to our audience is the, the idea about the multiple impacts yeah. and the effects they have. Because yes, you can have the one big injury, you know, where, you know, the, obviously it's a large hit and there's a period of post-concussion symptoms and things may abate, you know, uh, with care. And over time, even though the symptoms may reduce and not be as visible, but if it's in, within a critical period of time, if there's a second, third and fourth impact, and those impacts can be relatively minor. Yeah. But what happens is they stack mm. and they piggyback on the first. And so they may say, oh, all I did was just I hit my head on the door or um, a mate behind me gave me a little push from behind or he jumped on my back and, you know, I'm actually feeling the same as I did the first time. And that's often the case. Yeah. It takes a smaller incident to trigger and bring back almost, if not sometimes more, the symptoms that presented in the first hit. And and unfortunately that stacks and we get, and it takes a smaller and smaller subsequent incident to get a recurrence in those symptoms. And so, mm. and this is why, you know, return to play, return to school, return to learning, yeah. return to work, different names given to it, but that, that has to be part of their, of the practitioner's protocol. And I've got to say, it's one of the things that, is one of the most poorly understood and implemented when it comes to care. Yep. Oh, you look fine. Yeah. Can you count one through to ten? Great, you can do that. You can walk in a straight line while you're back on the field, or yeah. you, or you can get back to school. And and almost always, it's oh, I did it for a day. I played one game and I had to sit out for the rest of the season because I was just wiped. Yeah. And I didn't do anything. I didn't, I didn't get a hit. It was just the endurance or just the the impact of running was well carrying a school bag up upstairs was was enough to trigger my symptoms mm. and and that's such an important thing we see concussion uh, so not only the initial but we see the ongoing issues that, that plague a percentage of kids and and they're the ones that unfortunately get strolled into our, our office and we're just saying the parents are going we don't know where else to turn um you know this happened ages ago um, symptoms have been, they were okay at times, but when he's gone back doing sports or activities or encouraged to do something, it all flared up again. And he's just, not just plateaued, but has just been a, a dive since then. So that's something that I, I, I think is an important point worth noting to the, to the audience is this, this, this aspect of when things don't heal properly, even though the symptoms may look okay, it's only when it's provocated that it becomes more obvious and that provocation can be another little hit or it can be an emotional trigger. It can be a, a virus. It can be, it can be many things An emotional, it could be physical, it can be chemical. It can be many things that, that can trigger that response and it doesn't have to be another physical hit. So yeah. that's our homeostatic triad that mm. we've used a lot of times. And also it's a wound that didn't heal and it's ongoing in, inflammation, which are all things we've sort of um, covered. Now, I do know that Carlo has a lot of toys in his amazing practice, which none of us um, can be bothered buying. But, and I have sent a lot of high-end, um, not well people to you, Carlo, so that's fantastic. And I know your program is um, to rehab these people into better brain health and hopefully complete healing is, is magnificent. 
But even if they can't get to see you, Carlo, you know, there are many practitioners who've done your course. And it would be good if kids just went maybe every school holidays or something, even just for a checkup. Right. Certainly. There's um, so you can do the pre-season checks. You can do mid-season checks. Um, there are some hallmarks that you want to look for, and more classically, the historically, the baseline checks have always been a neurocognitive test, and those neurocognitive tests are very standardised. But the issue is, is that particularly athletes as they get a bit older, they they get a bit clued up to say, well, if I tank mm. on my pre-season, yes. if I'm starting from a low baseline. It's really, you know, normally I know I'm better. Yeah. But if I take a hit and I go back down a baseline, which is lower where I should be, but it's where it's been assessed, then I'm going to look normal. So there is, unfortunately, some bias and some errors that do occur with the cognitive aspects of testing. But this is why we strongly suggest doing more physiological markers as well. So our eye movements, our reaction time, our orthostatic testing, our balance, our vestibular test. They're all much more difficult tests to to, uh, fluff uh, and to tank. So, you know, really working with someone that has these tools or, you know, it doesn't have to be the high-end stuff that we have, but there are some more baseline things um, and someone who can certainly interpret what this means is something that is um, of great value, uh, I think, to the parents and to the and to the child. Yeah, I think so too. And you'd think if they were that smart to tank the test, they'd be smart enough to know what the damage of a concussion would do, right? That would be an ideal world, that, I think. That's a big leap forward. Oh. And you only have to look at our, our elite athletes. Yep. That when there's scholarships, when there's uh, an income, mm-hmm. when there's career, when there's many things that are riding on their performance, I, I get it. it it's yep. there, but... You know, and this is where the dialogue between the practitioner and the patient and the kid in this instance um, needs to be quite open. And sometimes you got to say, listen, this is, you're not heading the right path. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we've had, we've had kids call because they, they acknowledge that they're not right and they need, they need some work. Um, yeah. Most of the time it's parents saying, yeah. we're at our wits end. Uh, little, little Johnny's just not doing too well. Yeah. We've got HSC coming up. Yeah. What, what are we to do? Mm. So all of what you were just talking about there, Carlo, was all of that, you know, proper evaluation, you know, testing their neurocognitive, but also their physiological stuff as well. Definitely. Yeah. It's um, it. the guidelines now, if you look at the consensus statements on concussion management, they're now moving away from purely the cognitive test to one that involves an ocular motor, which is eye movement, vestibular, which is inner ear balance, mm. autonomic test. Yep. You know, the things like reaction times, um, synchronicity between left and right, uh, and they're the ones that are more formalised. Yep. In our office, we look at things like primitive reflexes, and, and you know, structural aspects, the jaw, and and and, and, and other emotional components that mm. go with it as well, because it can be a PTSD aspect that goes with, it, particularly if there's been an injury or an yep. accident. Yeah. Uh, the fear of doing something or the fear of not doing something can be quite real. So working with you know, health coaches or counsellors or psychologists is, is something that we we advocate as well as working with the nutritional aspect from ketogenic to certain oils and, and do away with this and increase this. They form part of that vocabulary with patients. Um, and when something more specific is required, we refer on, but, but often we can do a lot in-house in mm. terms of guiding people and it can make a big difference. Yeah. So we're kind of getting into that management side of things now. So what are some of the, I guess, do's and don'ts with concussions? 
one of my first discussions with almost every patient, particularly those that are the, the very alpha dominant personality type, the ones that are go, go, go. They've worked hard. They're very active. You know, they, they, they're always, it's always on the go. Mm. It's you need to respect this. If you don't, you will be slapped time after time after time. And it's a hard discussion to have. And and we say to them that this is something that you need to respect, you need to you need to be patient with. It's something that needs to be progressive, mm. something that needs to be graded, something that needs to be tailored. It's not an a, the more I do, the better I do. This is not a condition that that will work. And for many people, that's a very hard pill to swallow because they, they have the notion that, well, the more I train, the more, the more gym work I do, the better I'm going to be. And, and they've done that multiple times mm-hmm. and they've, they've come to me after the third, fourth or fifth repetition they realise, yeah, I did that and it didn't work. So holding, you know, guiding people on that is one of the more difficult things to do. And this is where our autonomic nervous system testing, our heart rate variability, our treadmill test, our stress and endurance test comes into it. And where we advocate the use of things like heart rate monitors, something that they can use as a litmus test to say, all right, time out. Mm. All right, even though I feel okay, but my heart rate says 120 and Carlo said that's my threshold and I need to pull back. The patients that can do that and adhere to that as close as possible are the ones that I know I can help better mm. and quicker. Mm. Those that don't, and it, and they they find out <laughs> repeatedly that um, that that's not the way forward. So um, that would be probably one of my biggest things is just respecting it, knowing that it can take time. You know, it's normally depending on the severity, depending on many factors, but it's it's things that can take months and mm. sometimes years to to re- rehabilitate. Now, generally on the, on the month scale, um, I've seen it as little as a few weeks in some stage, but typically it's, you know, within months. So they need to have everyone on board. They need to have their teacher. You know, I'm writing, I'm writing letters to teachers all the time about, you know, is it possible that the, um, little Johnny could take the lift instead of the stairs? Because the ability to walk upstairs with a backpack is too much orthostatically it may be too much for them you know can we sit them in this side of the classroom because there's less disturbances vision there's less light there's whatever it might be can we suggest that he wears uh, blue light filter lenses because of the fluorescence in the room might be an issue Um, we're going to get him to wear some headphones or some earbuds because of the sound levels there's various things so if we don't have buy-in from parents coaches teachers we're in a world of hurt. Mm. So they're, they're discussions that I have very frank with parents. And if I don't get that, uh, they don't come on yep. as a patient. Because I know it's just it's not, not going to work. work. It's just yeah. not going to work. So, um, But fortunately, by the time people come to us, they've been most places we get. We're fortunate that 50% of our patients come from outside of Sydney. Mm. So they spend a week to two with us and they do intensive. So by that stage, whatever we suggest it gets do. done. Yeah. All right. We're not the first line typically because people have gone through, you know, their own channels and realized that things aren't working. And, you know, we get, you know, we get great referrals from Lily. And by that stage, people are going, you got to see Carlo because this is not working as well as we would expect. Or there's a complexity here that's probably beyond what we can do. Yeah. Go see Carlo. 
And by that stage, people come to us and go, yeah, whatever you say, we'll do it. Um, So that works in our favour. So that's probably one of the most important things. So many drugs out there to take the, you know, stematol, you know, all those anti-inflammatories. I mean, that must be a bit of an uphill battle because people think they're better, but they've just had a a drug. So at the same time, I know there's a time and place for medication when, but too often it becomes a crutch. It's there to reduce symptoms, but without fixing the underlying problems. I have less of an issue if we're using it as a way to, as a circuit breaker. Mm. But, you know, whether whether it be inflammation or whether it be anxiety, because I know both of those can drive unwanted responses with care. So sometimes we can modulate that. And and typically there are even natural things that we would suggest to to be used in place. But if they were to use that, then as long as they're aware that it gives us an opportunity, a window that... Let's get some work done. Let's get some therapy done. And then your reliance on that becomes less. And and most people, in fact, everyone, and I asked them, I said, is it your goal to get off this medication? And fortunately, most people say yes. Um, so I know that I'm working with someone that is at least willing to, and my job is to help that occur. And how about in that sort of, you know, we talked before about that sort of 72-hour period, some do's and don'ts for parents maybe that they should or shouldn't do, the whole classic have a head knot come home, yeah, maybe take some Nurofen or Panadol, have a sleep, that sort of thing. What are some of your, you know, do's and don'ts that McDonald's parents can take McDonald's stop crying. Yeah, exactly. French fries. You know? Yeah, there's a it, there's a couple of things. One, certainly dietary. There's a – metabolically there's a there's a, a blood sugar level drop that, that occurs um, soon after um, a concussion. Mm-hmm. So we want to modify our carbohydrate intake – but not avoid it immediately or in, in total. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is not the time now to do intermittent fasting. Um, it, it's too unstable at that point. So certainly nutrition is big and quality carbs are okay, but high quality fats and proteins are definitely on on, on that. And certainly your sugary sweets, and your, <laughs> you know, going home on the way from the footy after having a knock and getting a big you know, liter of, of Coke, not great. Yeah. So, um, so inflammatory-based foods are things that I would suggest to minimise. And obviously, if someone has an intolerance to gluten and dairy, obviously keep keep off those. Um, but um, moderate, low to moderate carb, high protein, high fats, good yep. quality fats are essential. Brain um, food. Brain food, yeah, yeah. T- very much so. Um, hydrate as much as we can. Obviously, no alcohol. Yep. Um, not that kids should be, but no alcohol or, or any of those sort of um, sugary-based based, um, foods. The other thing I'd be suggesting is certainly rest, and you might they might need more might more hours of rest. And, and obviously as a parent you want to observe that, but um, don't deprive someone of, of sleep, particularly mm. those first 72 hours. But what you don't want to do is exercise or do anything that's too arduous, mm-hmm. too strenuous. No matter how good they're feeling, or otherwise, you know, I'm just going to sit you out for this for the rest of the week or for the next three or four days. There is no harm in doing that and, and, and playing a safety card in this perspective. So, no heavy sports, running, heavy impact, or even even really strenuous activities, even cognitive exercises mm. activities can be a bit of a, a struggle as well, like like tutoring and. Yep. Like if there's exams and there's things that you can't change, you know, be mindful of that and maybe just reserve those energy credits for for that and be conservative for other things. Um, so that'd be probably a couple of the main things is, is just some of the nutritional, mm. plenty of rest, 
and no extra exercise that I would say or activities that are not essential. Yeah. And um, does screen time come into that as well? Yeah. 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 So anything that involves, um, you know, blue lights yeah. and loud sounds, um, often people will go, you know, I don't feel great. I don't think I want to look at this anyway. Yes. Yeah. But I think as a parent you want to be a bit more strict than that. Yeah. So we've covered quite a lot, haven't we, Carlo? <laughs> Have we covered all that you want to cover today? or um, What else? Um, I think, I mean, look, I, I think as a parent, my suggestion to parents would be raise this point up with the coaches and the clubs and the, and the schools. Mm. Um, it, is, it is everyone's responsibility. It's the teams, it's the coaches, it's the parents and even with the kids, it is their responsibility to be to acknowledge what's happened and to and to let someone know that something's not right. Okay, so I think if there's if there's a void there, um, raise it with the authority well, authorities with the people <laughs> with you know, the powers that be within that organisation yeah. and say, look, I don't think this is right. Yeah, um, I think there should be some proactive stance taken to you know w- what's the first aid steps. What would happen if if my son had a concussion? What would, and if you're not satisfied by that, then, then you know, I'm sure there are levels. You know, if it's within schools, I'm sure there is a there's a there's there's a level that you could take it to. If there's if there's a, a club, you could take it to the district and and say, look, I'm not sure that our club is following proper standards. And and it's not an age thing, and it's not even a level thing. They all kids all get hit, um, so they all need some. Um, some some advice and attention. So, I mean, they're, they're probably some of the main things that I know that we wanted to share. Mm. Um, and taking care of each person as an individual because people just go, oh, there's only one person, but one person makes up that part of the population and, you know, brings up another, another person of their own one day, you know. So it is important that every person gets taken care of. But I love particularly some of the points you made previously regarding things happening at club level. You know, I think that can be one place it can um, – start quite quickly, you know, making sure that people are educated from that level and then it filters down very quickly. Again, so. I think if you start waving the you know, the legal <laughs> and the insurance flag, mm-hmm. um, I, I think clubs now are becoming a bit more risk averse. And I mean, it's not only for that purpose, but I mean, they've got a, a duty of care to their members. Um, so uh, again, look, we're, I'm, I'm painting this picture that, that there isn't something in place. I hope there is. But if there isn't, I would like, um, you know, members, which are the parents, which are the the, 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 um, the athletes, the school members, to take an active step and um, and to see that that's, uh, that is the case. Yeah, and kids getting checked up, you know, say, let's say every school holidays, just to make sure that anything missed is just picked up. It's like going to the dentist, you know. I mean, they get a haircut, you know, every three months, so... Get the spines checked, get the nervous systems checked. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, even at the very least, if it's a mechanical check mm. of their feet, their hips, their, yeah. you know, checking for scoliosis, checking for the effects of schooling and texting and, you know, all the things mm. that, that happen with school kids. I mean, we've been in practice long enough to know that, you know, there are some some traits that we see with kids that need a little bit more work than, than others. So, you know, I think it makes sense that that a chiropractor or, or an equivalent or, or someone trained within musculoskeletal therapy and, and, and concussion assessments 
identifies and can work with families and teams. Uh, well, you and I both one. refer to good physios as well in our sure. area, you know, so it's I, I'm not all sort of, you know, wedded to just one profession, just whoever's well trained. But I can actually feel another podcast coming on, you know, in the future about um, <laughs> kids and learning and brains, you know, so we, we'll wait for that one, Carlo. Our practice is sort of split um, in terms of who we see. Um, it is very much those that are with a neurological-based or a – an acquired condition like concussion, migraines, post-stroke, um, mm. neurodegenerative disorders, um, dizziness and vertigo, and the other half would be you know kids that are, that have got learning and behavioural issues mm. from um, you know they're on the spectrum or le- or developmental delays or attention issues or or those sorts of things. So we're fortunate we've got a team of practitioners that you know including myself that can identify and manage these things and and we've got some cool bits of technology in our office mm-hmm. that can um, that can help. Um, you know, it helps qualitate and quantitate. Again, outcome measures is something that we really want to work towards. When people come to us and say, well, what can we expect? And I, can, I want to say with confidence that within this period of time, we will expect to see these scores improve or this function improve or this measure improve. So it keeps us accountable, which I think is always important as a practitioner. Uh, it, it sort of drives and guides what we do, but also gives a parent uh, or a guardian or whoever an idea to say, "Well, okay, this is this is what why we're here and what we're trying to t- try to achieve." Mm. Yeah, very cool. I love it. We could sit here all day and talk about this sort of stuff. <laughs> I love it. Do you want to leave us with your three little things, Carlo? A bit of a, a wrap for the episode. Um, your three main points that you'd like to leave our listeners with. I think take a proactive step. Don't wait till something happens. Um, so whether that be work with the club, team, school, whatever it might be, and ensuring that there's a there's a, a, a strategy mm. for um, pre-season assessment and what happens if something happens. What are the and what are they doing? What's their return to 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 play or return to to sport program look like? I think it's it's incumbent upon the parent. It's their responsibility ultimately it's their child, but I think it's um, but make make their voice known. So I think that's probably one of the one of the first things. The second one is about that the subsequent knocks and the effect that that has. And a knock doesn't have to be, you know, it's interesting when I talk to parents about concussions and they said, oh no, he, he didn't blank out. You know, he, he didn't lose consciousness. I said, well, that that's not required for a, a concussion. Right, that's obviously a more severe, or potentially a more severe. Um, but you know, loss of consciousness consciousness is not the only thing that we look for. In fact, it's quite rare to happen. There are many other things that they want to be looking at. So, ongoing knocks has been something that parents should be aware of. And, get, and I guess the third thing would be some of the the signs and symptoms that mm. that that may be present with their child, or may be more diligent in acknowledging. And if they're ever unsure, then speak to someone who does. Now, I've got to caveat that and say at the same time that uh, with no disrespect to primary care practitioners like general practitioners, but often my experience and what I've seen, um, their knowledge in this area is generally quite poor. And even in in emergency care, Mm. um, you know, there's a place for medicine and place for emergency, and it's generally when something's quite you know, they need emergency care, yeah. right? But when someone comes in and it looks otherwise okay, but they know cognitively, physically, there's just things that just aren't working well, often the 
and this is what I hear from parents all the time, is um, they, they've been given the advice, take some aspirin, paracetamol, have more rest, and you'll be fine. Yeah. And oh, I went back the second, third, and fourth time, and the same advice was given. So I, I don't think that general practitioners, whilst they do many things, I don't think this is an area that they have a lot of training in. Uh, and so relying on their advice to what to do next, I'm, I'm a bit cautious about it. Uh, I would rather them say, I'm not sure, but why don't you see someone who does? Yep. That to me would be great. Yeah. And um, who are some of those people? Well, people that have got some some training. You know, and, you know, the, the professions typically are going to be your physios, your chiros, your osteos. Um, some personal trainers yep. can, some occupational therapists can, but it, this is not a, a weekend course where you do something, you do a you, couple of YouTube online videos and you're, hey, I'm, I'm certified. Uh, this is something that does take time. Yep. So seeking out people that have the appropriate training uh, and they can certainly contact me and if I'm not available or or within their network, their, their space, there are many people within um, my network that I've, I feel comfortable referring to based on geographic location or skill set. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of things. Speak to people that know and get advice from people that know what they're doing. Yeah. Seeking advice from someone that doesn't and doesn't really have any understanding, you're f- setting yourself up for failure. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, when you look at a kid's health in this instance, that be that's not something that a parent wants. Yeah. So I, I would say there are probably maybe three or four things that I've said um, that I would I, I would pass on. Yeah, well, I think there's so much to take away from that episode. I think even from just your list of things to look out for that aren't just those physical signs of, you know, blacked out, like you said, or has a headache or things like that, but some of those more, I guess, brainstem and cerebellum sort of stuff that we talked about. I think that's going to be amazing for parents just to have that advice, you know, in itself to be aware and to be able to observe their kids. So thank you for that episode. It was wonderful. And if you wouldn't mind, we'd love you to share with our audience where they can find you, how they can contact you and where they yeah can get more information about you? Certainly. So again, wearing my couple of different hats. So the clinic, uh, so we're called Brain Hub um, and our website is www.brainhub.com.au. We're a clinic based in Gladesville uh, in the lower North Shore of Sydney. We can be contacted. Our number is 1300-997-197. You can jump on our socials and con- contact with us that way. Um, but for practitioners or those that want to learn more about how to manage people with concussions and identify uh, and dizziness conditions. I also have an additional sort of stream where we call, it's called Brain Hub Academia, uh, which is more the academic or the education portion of what we do. So it's brainhubacademia.com.au. Uh, and they can look for some of our online courses that we have, some of our um, upcoming certification courses that we're going to be running later this year, which I'm, I'm super excited about. We're putting some final touches on that now. Me too. We, which is going to be training, um, you know, practitioners um, in how to identify and manage people. And and we're, doing, we're starting off in Sydney. We're going to be running it in Dallas uh, next year. Oops, did I let Dallas out of the, out of the, <laughs> out of the bag? I, I wasn't sure where in the US, but I think Dallas has sort of got the nod at the moment. And we're running it in Europe as well. So, wow. so we're running, we've had some good interest from different practitioners on, on this um, competency-based course that we're going to be starting later in Sydney. So it will be run in Sydney um, later this year. Amazing. Oh, well, thank you so much, Carlo. We have loved having you here. And um, like Lily said, I think we'll have you back for some more episodes. Love to. Thank you so much. 
A quick disclaimer, these episodes are not intended to replace help, treatment or advice from your healthcare professionals. The information in today's podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not designed to diagnose or treat any conditions. This is just a friendly reminder that we do not know you or your child or those around you and therefore do not know your specific needs. Please seek guidance from your healthcare professionals surrounding your concerns.